This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. And Well, Billy. Yes. I noted your uh, your extreme state of upsetness today uh, over some news that came out uh, over clothing you like to wear. And <laughs> open uh, back, open back prom dresses. Yeah. So apparently, you're not going to be going to this uh, this prom at this Connecticut high school. Um, the the kind of clothing that Billy wears uh, around his home uh, and during the podcast, quite frankly. Uh, has been uh, nixed by a certain Connecticut high school, uh, and it's it's quite <laughs> quite shameful, quite scandalous. <laughs> Billy likes to wear lingerie essentially as he as we do the show. And uh, are you periscope? You should periscope this. Periscope yourself in your lingerie. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're so, so you're so stupid. I am stupid. But uh, I just wanted to get into this. Oh, let's just start going into this because there's a there's a school in. Connecticut, it says female students, and this is on, oh, this is on Gothamist, and Hot Air was doing something on it too. Female students at a Connecticut high school are furious, furious, that dresses bought for this weekend's prom are being banned because they have exposed shoulders, back, sides, and legs. One mother whose daughter had two dresses rejected said, they suggested that the girls wear t-shirts under their dresses. My daughter won't wear a t-shirt. She would be mortified. You can't, again, you're doing the, you're doing the Periscope thing. And guess what? They can hear half of it, unless you have unplugged your headphones. Um, you... I have actually unplugged my headphones. So they can hear this that's going on? Oh, come on. It's like dealing with a child. Okay. Anyway, so there's this story going on, and Billy looked at this and said, and went straight to his closet. When we were talking about this in the pre-show stuff, he went straight to his closet and comes back to Skype and holds up on the camera. It says... They wouldn't let me wear this to the this this yes, prom. Yes, I, so. I I held up all of my prom dresses in my extensive collection of prom dresses, and I said, "Look, this one has an open back. This one's a crop top. I don't even know what that means. Can't wear that <laughs> tube one. top. Billy wears tube tops on the show." <laughs> so anyway, so the, I think the thing that they, I found outrageous about this story wasn't the fact that they're asking these girls not to wear these dresses, and there's the people are getting pissed off about it. It's like these are totally inappropriate and. The the Gothamist headline says the high school is quote slut shaming these students. Billy, no, it's like telling people to have standards, right? I mean, not everybody has to agree with those standards, but I think in the culture we're living in, schools probably want to be safe. We know prom night's a time when people really go wild, so they're setting standards. Deal with it, people. Right. Well, and it goes back. It harkens back to those posters you brought up. Was it last week or the week before? All the posters was, that talk about having one character. Week. What? What? It was a week sometime. It was sometime, it was sometime ago. They all, the days run together. But but these women are upset about the slut shaming. How is this slut shaming? Asking you to dress appropriately is now slut shaming? That makes absolutely no sense to me. And I have another question for you, Billy. What's, what's your question for me? What's wrong with slut shaming? <laughs> well, I think the term's annoying. It's like every other annoying term in the world that we have to seize on and use every five minutes. 
It's it's. I don't think we need to be saying shut slam. What shut slamming? Oh my god! I'm. This is what happens when I only do two coffees. I don't think we need to be talking about slut shaming. We need to be talking about people having standards. And so I think when we put a label on it, it's like, oh look, we have this awful label on this because you only slut shame when you're a bad person and you're being so mean to these young girls. Yeah. No, we're you're setting standards for them. But it's the same thing. We go to this fat shaming thing. Where, you know, people get upset about people for a quote fat shaming other people. And I'm I just I I guess my question is, regardless of the terminology you use for it, what's wrong with it? What's wrong well, with I fat think, shaming or slut shaming? What's wrong? Fat shaming thing. If you're making fun of somebody, or I mean, I think I think it's wrong. But you know, there's a difference between saying, "Look, that person's a fat pig," and "Look, that person shouldn't," you know, maybe wear that inappropriate dress. But but even on the fa- okay, so let's look at the fat thing for a second. So that person's a fat pig. Now it's not appropriate to say that. And this goes back to the tone discussion that you and I have had before, and that Jared and and Matt had on the show before. But talk about tone. But as far as like the fat shaming, though, they'll even call fat shaming if you point out someone's overweight and maybe needs to lose some weight. It's any time that you call call out somebody's inability uh, to to perceive things outside of themselves. True, you know, but why it, do people it, care so much about they, other people's weight? Con- concentrate on the giant zit on your face or whatever other issue well, you I, have. Well, I know I get that. I get that. And, unless unless Not you yet, are imposing but. your grossness on me. So if you're walking around, Billy, if you're walking around in a tube top and in in a crop top tube top and wearing Daisy Duke shorts and high heels, okay, regardless of all the body hair, forget the body hair for a minute. If I point out you don't look appropriate, that's not an appropriate thing. You're offending my eyes, right? And and listen, people can wear what they want. But at the same time, if you're going to wear something that you look ridiculous in, why are you mad at me for holding up the mirror? Me simply holding up the mirror and pointing out this. Are you sure this is how you want to dress? Whether it's appropriate dress as far as this um, prom goes, or if it's appropriate dress for the, the body type that you have. Why is that suddenly shaming and why is that bad? Simply because you are not gifted with self-awareness and I'm trying to help you become self-aware. Why are you mad at me? Even if I don't have any bad and ill intentions, I'm not calling you names. I'm not saying, oh, you're, you're a big fat, fat, fatty. It's a matter of uh, trying to get you to dress appropriate, help you dress appropriately, so that you don't embarrass yourself. Because the fact is, almost everybody who sees you is thinking it, whether it's you're dressing slutty or you're dressing inappropriately or you're dressing with clothing that does not work for your fatness. Everybody's thinking it. You need to be aware of what's going on, and it's not shaming you. It's like you you don't have any self awareness, so let me help you out. Don't get mad at me for holding up the mirror. Yeah, I guess I just don't know. I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think too many people want to have their voice heard on it, and I don't think people need to hear their voice on it, unless you're really offending people. But, I mean, I've heard people say things about other people's weight when they're, like, just wearing something they don't like that isn't inappropriate. If they think it's too tight or it's too whatever, shut up and handle your own affairs. That's the way I look at it. Well, but if the, if the, if the point of a tight shirt is to show off a, cer- a, a certain type of figure and you don't have that type of figure... Don't wear the style of style of clothing that shows off that type of figure. You're so vicious, but you know. So here's the I don't thing, want. Right? I, listen, I don't want Rosie O'Donnell going to the beach in a French bikini. I don't think it's appropriate. Rosie O'Donnell. True, but Rosie O'Donnell should make... go to Rosie O'Donnell should go to the beach in a flannel sleeping bag. Oh my god, okay. you are awful and hellbound. And the bottom line is, though, no matter what Rosie O'Donnell wears, no matter what bathing suit somebody wears who is perceived as being really overweight, they're going to be criticized for it, right? So I think 
you know, there's truth to what you're saying, but there's also a lot of loud mouths that just have a lot of opinions and they don't want to look at their own issues. I'm sure there's something about all of us that we can. Why are you looking at me when you say that? I'm just, I'm sure there's something about all of us that we can point out. Yeah. Well, well, maybe most of us. So speaking of school stories, now you had a story earlier this week that related to a school. um, And sorry, folks, if we sound like we're rushing through this, we had a really give a little tease here later in the show. We had an interview that went long. um, That's really, really good with, uh, with this lady, this author uh, who has, uh, written a book called God of the Big Bang, Dr. Leslie Wickman. And she is fantastic. And we're going to air that later in the show. And it's it's a fantastic interview, but it went longer than we expected. And so we're kind of trying to get some stories in for you now. So we apologize for the bad transitions and the fact that we are not professional. Well, you're used to that by now. But anyway, Billy, tell us about your story with the school buses. So it's this brother and this sister down in Houston. They're they're eight year old. It's an eight year old and a seven year old. And their dad's a pastor. He's a Christian rapper. And I love this story because they're getting bullied on the bus, right? So they go home. They tell their parents about it. Their parents complain to the district. The district, you know, apparently tells the kid to stop. The bully stops for like a week and then starts back up again. So the parents are at a loss. The father's like, I want to get on that bus and I want to tell this kid off. But he's like, that's not a good idea. I'm not going to do that. So he prays. Remember, he's a pastor and a Christian rapper, and he's like, God, what do I do? So he feels like God's telling him to give his kids a Bible to hand to this bully. Give the bully a Bible. Now, the idea sounds kind of crazy, right? But the kids go on the bus, they confront the bully, and they say, hey, we have this gift for you. They give him the Bible, and these kids claim that in about two minutes, this kid not only apologized to them, he thanked them for the Bible, and he's left them alone ever since. That's amazing. I should give you a Bible. Yeah, that would, you know. Anyway, I thought it was I thought it was awesome the way that they dealt with this situation and the pastor says, "I prayed about it and God said, "You know what? Let's get this kid a Bible and tell Jesus tell him Jesus loves him and invite him to church." I mean, nobody does that anymore. Isn't that sad? The the the, the correct Yeah, we're the, too busy talking about Rosie O'Donnell's uh leopard print bikini. You know what? And these kids what these kids probably could have done is that, like lots of bullies tend to be, you know, fatty fat fatty fat cells, you know, the bigger kids that pick on other kids. They could have fat shamed the bully. But they didn't. <laughs> they were nice to him. And uh, you know, one day we'll, we'll one day we'll have to have some discussions about, you know, some things that maybe you and I went through when we grew up well, I don't know about you, but things that I went through as a as a kid. And um, the way that God dealt with things in my life and helped me learn some pretty powerful were lessons. You a, were you a bully? Believe it or not, I was not the bully. <laughs> you were bullied? Uh-huh. But it worked out. And uh, God did some pretty amazing things through some people's... I guess I got a minute here to share it. So we used to be in high school, in junior high and high school, all the way through, I don't know, sophomore year or something. And uh, I used to get the tar beat out of me in the locker room after you know after PE class because we'd go in the locker room and I mean the tar beat out of me I had a, I had a baseball bat broken over my back I had got beat but two by fours before I got they'd clip a, a lock to their belt and you know smack me with it and you know just stupid things and uh, again these this sound is, this, like really nice guys so anyway I was always taught you don't hit back always turn the other cheek always turn the other cheek and that's what I was always taught and um and i don't know how far you take that in my case i just took it all the way till it stopped for the most part you know when when it finally really stopped was i started lifting weights when i was in you know in about my sophomore year and over the summer i don't know gained 60 pounds 
and uh, could beat the tar out of anybody if I wanted to and just prove that you didn't have to. But there's one guy who I finally I snapped and I didn't hit him, but I just grabbed him by the shirt and just quickly flipped him and pinned him on the floor. And I said, don't ever touch me again. And that's where it ended. And uh, anyway, so long and the short of it is I, I never hit back. I never fought back. Never once, despite all this garbage that I went through. And, you know, today I could still I could still make the argument that, you know what, I would have had every right to, and I don't think it would have been a sin for me to have fought back, but I never did. I don't think it would have been a moral question for me to fight back other than I was convicted to not. Um, and you can't go against the things that you're convicted on. Uh, but the I cool thing is... I was convicted to fight once. The cool thing is I, I got... By the time I got to graduation... One of my, all of these guys had become my best friends. By the time we graduated, these guys who had been, you know, so nasty were like best friends. They're classmates. They're some of my closest, dearest friends. And um, God used that in an amazing way. And uh, when we graduated, one of those friends, his his mother said to my mother, we were nasty to him. Now, this is, this friend was never one who had ever done any of the, um, you know, slapping me around or anything. But he also never stopped it, never jumped in to stop it. And he felt bad about that. But uh, he said, Mom, I can't believe he never once said anything about it. He never brought it up. He never fought us back. He never cursed any of us. He was never mad at any of us. And I don't know why. And it was an opportunity to explain why for my mom to explain to his mom. The reason he doesn't is because he believes in, you know, in Christ and following Christ's edicts and what God has convicted him to do or to not do. And it was a really amazing time. And it's like, you hear that one story. And it's like the whole thing was worth it. The whole thing was worth it for that seed to be planted. And so I don't know, God does pretty amazing things in people, but I, I'm also not against though. I have taught my, my kids, maybe some self-defense, but also you defend other people, right? So if, if you see somebody else innocent getting slapped around, you step in. So I, and I had opportunities to do that when I was, you know, junior, senior in high school and bigger than almost any of the other kids in the school as I saw one kid getting bullied and got a chance to step in and slam the bully up against the lockers and hold him up by his jacket and hold him up against the wall off the ground and explain to him very clearly that he was never going to do that again. And he never did. So anyway, I don't know, maybe I'm a hypocrite, but whatever. No, listen, sometimes I feel like we tell kids don't hit back and kids shouldn't hit back. But there are times when, not in your case, obviously, but where it becomes necessary to hit back sometimes. Right. Self-preservation. I mean, I'd, again, if my life had been threatened, that'd be one thing. And, and maybe maybe I should have. Maybe maybe it's possible somebody could make an argument like, you should have fought back. I mean, you're gonna, you cause, they could have caused serious damage. I mean, the fact is that they didn't. As far as I can tell, they didn't cause. I mean, well, I, that's, had, I, had the mental, I had the mental problems beforehand, you know? mental emotional problems beforehand so i guess the argument could be made but i would respond like I, i'm here you know and horrible things could have happened you know but they didn't i always just felt convicted that i wasn't supposed to fight him back and so whatever but I, anyway so i say all that to say when i read this story of what this pastor did with his kids i'm like way to go i had more of a slow clap more of a did it build at all it did a little, yeah. So more kind of, a... kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a stupid. I thought the pa- I thought it was great. I thought, I thought the pastor it was fantastic. Was, was awesome, and the kids were great. And I think you know it, it shows you that the Bible can shut people up. Shut up, boo, <laughs> or whatever it is, lingo it is you use. So, um, 
Have you taught Ava, your youngest, to uh, defend herself? No, she, came, she came out of the womb hitting, so we're, we're good. <laughs> it's that Italian fighting blood, I suppose. Oh, yeah. She's, like, ready to go already. <laughs> Did she carry The other guns day, too? in fact, she pushed my nephew... <laughs> And Did, it's actually a really funny story. Did he have it coming? She, Did he have it coming? Uh, no, he's oh. he's one. He's like almost two. He's not even two yet, and she's two and a half. So she she always pushes him around, and like for for the last year she's been pushing him around. So she pushed him out of the way, and he turned around. And he never retaliates, right? Right. And he grabbed both parts of her hair and yanked on both sides, <laughs> and she started crying. And the funny thing is. You know, and maybe this is a lesson for for high school Chris Field. He has she has not bothered him again. Yeah, it may be. That was good for her or him. I no, mean. I like I like that you didn't hit back. I actually do think that that story that your mom had a chance to tell, you know, that reasoning rather that she had a chance to tell is she probably wouldn't have had that chance to tell it had right. you been a jerk and hit back. Right. Or even a or even non jerk. You know. I don't know. She had this conversation years after it had all happened. We're talking two, three years after it had all happened. It had gone on for quite a while, for a year, two or three, but she had this uh, two or three years later this opportunity. And we weren't ever once to go to the school and complain and say, someone's picking on my kid. That's why the whole bullying thing that goes on and this anti-bullying crusade that's going on in schools that everybody cries about and screams about, and I can't believe you say these things. You're bullying him, cyberbullying, by typing mean words or saying mean things. I'm like, get over yourself. Grow a pair and move on with oh, your we life. Should debate it. I actually disagree with you on this. Of course one. you do, because you're a sissy boy. That's why no, you're wearing no, tube no. tops during thing. recording. Here's the thing. There's a reason why why you know young, youth suicides are up. I, I you can't escape the bullying now. But, but when no, we were when we were young, suicide, it was different. You suicides, could escape it. Youth suicides are up because people feel more and more hopeless, not because people are meaner and meaner. But part of that is the inability to escape these horrible, horrible things that that it's not just it's not just horrible hey, words. It's pictures. It's let's let's get back let's get back into <laughs> this. Let's get back into this because I think it also relates to. Uh, I think lower church attendance and lower numbers and lower numbers of people in church and people lower fewer numbers of people who are faithful. And it's a story you did. I think it was, but let's have this discussion on the other side of this break. Okay. You willing to do that? Whatever. Okay. Just a minute. We'll be right back. And I forgot, of course, to turn up the thing. So we're going to, now we'll be right back. Back to the Church boys. All right, we're back. Billy has been spending the entire break um, ridiculing me and giving me a hard time while we were preparing for this next segment and calling me names and typing horrible, awful things through text and email. And I just want to say, Billy, I don't appreciate it, and I'm going to have to kill myself now. Obviously, you are awful. obviously because words hurt, and I have sensitive feelings. And I'm going to kill myself. It's not because I'm hopelessly lost. It's because you were mean. But but words can make people hopelessly lost. They can. They can reinforce the feeling of being hopelessly lost. Words can words can make people think they feel more lost, but the fact is they're already lost, very lost without hope. Listen, if you there if, are if, people But listen, if I had been if I had been in a situation where I and listen, trust me, the stuff that I went through, there were times when I literally said to my parents, if I'd have had a gun, I'd have shot them. Okay? I, that conversation absolutely happened because I was that, I was that mad. All Listen, of all of that said, that would have been based in a hopelessness, not because they were just simply because they were being mean. 
But I think we've seen young people get worse since you were going through this because you're about what uh, 914 years old now. So yeah, no, no. when you were in wait, when you were in high school, sometime after Islam came on the scene, in what year 600? <laughs> um, I think things were a little bit different than they are now. But my, my point is this: young people have gotten worse. It's a different dynamic. You can't escape it because it's it's following you home now. Before you could leave school, you'd have a break. There are literally young people who are so bullied by everybody around the clock that I think they're not as they're not as strong as you were. There are a lot of young people who are not as strong as you were. But I don't think I don't think young people have gotten worse. I think it's become more frequent. So the one kid who's found to be weak, more and more go to that weak person. That's the way bullies have always worked. They find the the quote weak one. And the fact is like you just said, they didn't have the grounding that I had. Listen, if you have a Christian kid who brought up in a solid Christian home, he's far less likely to kill himself as a result of, quote, cyberbullying or whatever else you want to call it than the kid who comes from an atheist home or something. I, I mean, personally, that's what I believe. I don't have any facts to back that up. But I'm just saying there is a hopelessness involved when, but I suicide, think when, when young, suicide rolls around. I think when you're young, your value is not in the place, even if you're a Christian, for most young Christians— the value that they still have in life is very much rooted in their friends and the people around them, despite how Christian they are, how much they go to church. And I do think that when everybody around you is telling you that you're a piece of trash who deserves to not be around, that there are a lot of young people who take that to heart. And now that they're not only getting that eight to 10 hours a day, they're getting it 24 hours a day via social media Unplug. and everything else. Unplug. But see, there are simple answers to this outside of killing oneself, right? And we have, but I don't again, think you young know people that too, reason but, like that. But they need think, to. Don't you have parents? Get off. Get your kid off of Facebook. If you're worried about the cyberbullying, don't respond to the cyberbully. Say, son, get off of Facebook. Now you, yeah, but is you that have the an obligation to, to the, Is that the solution? It's the solution the for that the solution for that kid. It's not the solution to the overall problem. Sure, do we need to have the discussions about being nicer to people? Sure. We live in a civilized society. You ought to act civil. At the same time, take some personal responsibility. If you can't handle the crap that's coming into your life, change your life. Stop yeah, doing the things you, where the think ch- a thirteen year old reasons the way that you just did. But they, I'm not talking about the thirteen year old. I'm talking about the parent who pays for the Facebook, who pays for the phone that accesses Under, Facebook. Understood. Who pays but for I don't the internet in I, the home. But I think that to say, oh, well, you just shouldn't use Facebook, but everybody else in the world can because Get away people are from torturing where the garbage you is. Is, is sort of, you know, that, yes, should you stay away from it if it's a, it's a place where people, I had people emailing me stuff when I was in high school. I mean, so you can't, you can't, you have to totally unplug to separate it, right? Sure. And I was part Which of the generation that first, that first experienced it, you know, and so I, I do, listen, I think that these problems have gotten worse. I do believe that. And I think the numbers show that they've gotten worse. And I don't just and yes, hopelessness is part of that. But they're cr- I think Go ahead. I think having a faith, having the Christian faith, helps you navigate that, but it doesn't save you from it entirely. But they're crying out for attention. So they find so they find suicide as a form at least one part of it as a form of crying out for attention <laughs> in some regard. And it's ridiculous and they don't understand again, the thirteen year old. Or they just want to die because they're so miserable. Right. They don't but at the same time, if suicide rates are up the bullying that happened when we when we were kids, and again I say when I guess should say when I was kids, was much more physical than verbal. If getting beat up all the time doesn't lead you to kill yourself, somebody's words that you can easily just unplug or unfollow or defriend or block or whatever should not lead you to kill yourself. But the See, fact is, the kids won't. It, the kids won't unplug physically than have people berate me in every possible way. 
See, I don't care. I don't care one way or the other. I've I've experienced both, and neither of them bother me. That's because you're like a drone, <laughs> like a robot. No, I think you're a really strong person, and that, that no, was no, my point. No, 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 let's not go crazy here. No, but I don't think, I think a lot of people are not as strong as you were as a younger person, and but probably all, that goes back to your faith. Right, but that goes back to the faith, the lack of hopelessness, and I'm telling you, when you have hope, suicide doesn't enter the question, and the fact is, suicide is almost always, maybe even always, based in hopelessness, and the increased hopelessness is reflected in decreased and listen, church attendance doesn't make you a Christian. The church attendance doesn't give you hope. All it does is help you build hope, hopefully help you build your relationship with God, which that's where your hope comes from. But church attendance is down, right? I mean, in church and belief, and you were doing some stuff on this, what was it, last week? The stats of, of church attendance being way down and Christianity is allegedly collapsing. Now, I know there's some debate about whether that, that's happening, but what was the stuff that you found about like Christianity is... The proportion of Christians in this country, it's gone from like 78% in 2007 down to 70% in 2014. That's a pretty big decrease. That's a big decrease. Um, it is. And I think, you know, there, there's some increases among Muslims and Jews and, and other groups. Um, and, but but there, the other area that you have to look at is, well, what's happening with the atheists, the agnostics, and the unaffiliated? And, the, and they're this group called the nuns, not the N-U-S, but the N-O-N-E-S. Mm -hmm. And they're the people who have no affiliation. The biggest proportion of those people are people who are just unaffiliated, unattached. You know, they're not they're not saying they're atheists, but they're not they don't identify with anything. Okay. That that group is sort of the one you really want to be looking at because you know these are people who probably went to church at some point who have stopped or who grew up with a faith who have stopped the overall group of these people which includes atheists agnostics and and um, unaffiliated it went from about 16 percent in 2007 to 22 percent hmm. that's a that's a big jump yeah, um so you know there's some concern there and atheists have really grown as well um, in the, within that group so i i you know and i have a different theory on you know Again, the world loves to define what Christian is without actually looking to see what Christian actually means. But, you know, the, the Christianity is shrinking. Well, maybe the number of people going to church, but the fact that we drop Christians decreased from what you said, 78.4% in 2007 to 70.6% in 2014. Yeah, I rounded. Okay, okay yeah. so we're talking, we're talking about an eight-point drop, which is a serious amount, and that's an eight-point drop of, of 78% is... Five you know, million? Is more than, well, it's more than 10% of those calling themselves Christian have falling away, no longer identifying as Christian. But the fact is, maybe it's people finally just identifying correctly because a lot of people who call themselves Christians live as atheists. You know what I mean? Yes. They live, yeah. they live a life that if, you're, uh, if you were an outside observer, just to try to say, okay, I'm going to watch this person live and how they live says, I think that they are a... Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or atheist and a lot of Christians and I would guess a lot of the people in that you know 10% fall away from Christianity group would be people who would like you know what I would identify them as atheist or agnostic because they don't really seem to believe anything okay they might self-identify as Christian that doesn't mean that they are I have plenty of friends who don't go to church at all who have no relationship with Christ but identify themselves as Christian because they're good conservative you know, patriotic Americans and all Americans identify as, you know, good red-blooded conservative Americans identify as Christian. Well, that's why they identify as Christian. That doesn't make them Christian. And then if well, they finally start living up to how they actually believe, they're going to drop out of church and drop out of that self-identification. 
There's a couple of things that are really important to highlight. The difference between proportions and numbers of people, like the number of people. Right. Because your proportion can decrease, right? Christians can be – there can be fewer as a proportion, a smaller proportion. Right. But like for evangelicals, for instance, the proportion slightly went down very, very slightly. Evangelicals, in fact, have stayed pretty strong. But the number of evangelicals has gone way up mm. by millions in that seven-year period. So it's a smaller proportion of the overall public because more Muslims are here, more maybe some there are some more atheists. But, you know, the population is growing, but there are more evangelicals, even though that, that proportion has gone down. But the biggest, the two biggest areas where the decrease has happened for Christians, and this is not a coincidence. I know everybody on the left is going to say, you know, and when I say left, I mean progressive Christians. They're going to say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with our theology. Mainline Protestantism is the biggest decline. Mm. I think it was like, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, three percentage points or something. Biggest decline. Catholicism had the second biggest decline. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting with Protestants who are tend to be more progressive because you're seeing those churches split up over gay marriage. You're seeing them split up over theology. That The other areas were a lot healthier. Mm. The more conservative areas of Christianity were much healthier, which I think you know is, is sort of another interesting way of looking at the data. Yeah, I think it's important to look at trends and look at data, but it's also under, important to understand human nature. And the fact is that if I've got 100 people in my church and 10 of them stop coming to church and stop identifying as Christian, but those 10 people are also people who are daily getting into porn or getting drunk or or practicing you know, a, a, an unhealthy, unchristian lifestyle, and they finally say, you know what, I'm just going to stop going to church and stop identifying myself as someone who goes to this church or as a Christian generally— Okay, so the number might go down, but the fact is nothing actually changed. Right. They just, yeah. I, they, they just I finally identified themselves correctly rather than having lied all these years or fooled themselves or whatever. I don't want to necessarily throw out any you know, aspersions there that somebody was lying, but misidentifying themselves because they didn't fully well, understand what it meant in the first place. Well, you're seeing also a lot of Christians are being hung out to dry in the media for refusing, you know, Baker's refusing. We've had people on the show. Yeah. Florist refusing to serve gay weddings. I think it becomes much more of a culture war sort of mentality when you have all these things happening. And some people don't want to be associated with that or they reassess and they say, you know what? I've been calling myself a Christian for 10 years, but I haven't gone to church and I'm not really sure I know who Jesus was. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm sure there have been. And I think that the key area we have to look is young people. Yeah. Young people have been for the last 15 years your generation, which, I mean, we're pretty much almost in the same generation. We both cross over on that line. Yeah. Our generation has been completely inundated with sex, violence, drugs, everything else, and entertainment for years now. So after you do that through entertainment and media, do you really expect that young people are going to be very Christian? No, they're going to be completely godless, and that's and not completely, but the, there are fewer Christians among millennials than any other generation. And they've been taught godlessness. I mean, that's been a part of curriculum you know, in schools for a, for quite a while now. And it, and it goes, and again, well, this gets us into our interview that we're going to have right after the break, but this woman that's going to talk about the Big Bang and how God maybe used that and how she sees God in science and all this kind of thing, she's fantastic, she's wonderful. But, you know, there's there's an attempt to take God out of how even science works and how, you know, God and how the universe came to exist and that sort of thing. And she, she has a great book out about how her research in science points to God. And so we're going to get into that here in a minute, but we're going to take a break first. We'll be right back. The Church Boys. The Church Boys. Man, I hate these guys. And we have 
a very special guest, as Chris Field said. Her name is Dr. Leslie Wickman, and we wanted to talk with her because there's this ongoing debate about religion versus science, and can you really believe that the Earth was, you know, 500 billion, trillion, gazillion years old, and really believe in Genesis still in the Bible. You know, how do you how do you rectify those different things? You know, faith and and science. And so, she's Recti- been an astronaut. Rectify? You are stuck on that word today. <laughs> rectify. What? Rectify. Why, yeah. Why do I Reconcile. keep saying rectify? I don't. Know. It's so funny because Chris always chastises me, and I keep saying rectify, which is not proper. In this in this context, and I think I'm going to continue saying it now because it really upsets Chris. <laughs> um, so anyway, she the, in the interview that we, we talk with her really, how do you take these two issues and 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 allow them to mesh together in a way that they can actually work together? And a scientist like her, as a Christian, can look at the world and see God in the design of the world. So I'll stop rambling and we'll just play the interview for you. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys, and we have a special guest today. It's Dr. Leslie Wickman. She's a former astronaut, and she's also the head of the Department of Engineering and Computer Science at Azusa Pacific University. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. Well, I know you've, you've been traveling quite a bit, too, and I'm glad that you were able to make, make the time to, to chat with us. Let, let's jump in, because you work in a really fascinating field um, obviously, and and you know this whole debate over religion versus science, and and can the two be meshed together, and can a scientist be a Christian? And I know you get a lot of questions about this, um, and I know that you you have a book that we'll talk about as well that uh, addresses some of these issues. But I guess let's just start with your own faith journey. I'm really curious, um, you know, knowing a little bit about your professional journey. What what was your personal faith journey? How did you come to faith? Okay. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and I came to faith at a pretty early age. Um, and coupled with that, my my dad was an engineer, and he had a telescope. So when I was young, we used to take the telescope out in the backyard, and my dad and my brothers and I would look at the stars and the moon and the planets. And for me, that kind of inspired my interest in studying nature through science. And I guess I should also mention my mom was a dietitian, so she was in the sciences as well. And so I think there's, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, inherited interest, if you will. And um, so since I did come to faith at an early age, you know, I always heard both at home and at church that you know, God was the source of everything in the created realm. And and so in studying, you know, looking at the heavens through my dad's telescope, it was always with the understanding that God was the source of all this wonder. And then, you know, um, about junior high, I ran into my first um, atheist uh, biology teacher who adamantly said that, you know, science and excuse me, science and religion have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And um so so that perceived conflict was pretty obvious to me at a pretty early age. And so because of the fact that I was solidly committed to my faith and very interested in science, the notion that you know, these two are odd, didn't sit well with me. And so 
I kind of feel like I started on the quest to reconcile them at a pretty early age. Why do you think people struggle? I mean, it's like the the age all struggle. It's what everybody always talks about: science versus religion, and and they're always being pitted against one another in in rhetoric. Why is there this struggle? Why do you think people? I mean, some people like you have found a way to rectify them, but why do you think so many people feel like they can't rectify them? Well, I think really it's an illusion, and that illusion of conflict <laughs> is is primarily perpetuated by people at the extremes of the dialogue. And I think, you know, at, at each end of the dialogue, we have um, what I call <clears throat> fundamentalists. And I know that word can be used a lot of different ways, but when I say that, what I mean is people that are so entrenched in their positions that it's impossible for them to step back and think critically about their own perspectives. And so I think at one end we have uh, the atheistic fundamentalists who would say that, you know, science explains everything and that there's no room for God. And at the other end, we might have religious fundamentalists who think that um, there's no room for science, that science is the enemy, that um, the Bible is a scientific textbook, um, and that never the two should meet, you know. And and I think that between those two extremes, there's plenty of room for dialogue. And for me, you know, I I tend to have a very analytical mind, and I think, you know, um, because I believe that God is who he claims to be uh, as a creator of everything, then it doesn't seem logical to me that the truth about God and who he is could contradict the truth about his creation. And so for me, there's just, there's this kind of uh, fallacy in logic that, um, you know, if, if we study what God's created, it's somehow going to contradict who he is. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so for me, that's where you start kind of doing the research of both the science side of things as well as the um, biblical interpretation side of things to see how the, the two fit together. And, um, you know, many, many, many scientists and philosophers over the years have said that, you know, God reveals himself in two books, the book of scripture on the one hand and this book of nature or creation on the other. And, you know, that dates at least as far back as the Renaissance and you know, Galileo and Francis Bacon and others. Um, and, and so the key really is in seeing how those two books of God's revelation fit together. So, Dr. Rickman, I had a couple questions for you, I guess more comments, and I'd, I'd like your take on it, I guess, because I'm not, I'm not a smart person, and so it's hard for me to come up with a question here. But I guess part of my question or observation is, and, and I have conversations with friends who are um, atheist and faithful, people who are faithful and uh, believe in um, a billion year, a four billion year evolutionary process, and people who are faithful and believe in a you know in a young Earth, the you know ten thousand years or less uh, for the age of the Earth. And you know, frankly, I I'm okay with either. I, I believe that God did it. I guess mm-hmm. I guess part of my question for those people uh, who are of faith who have differing opinions on you know maybe how God did it is that and maybe maybe you can clear this up for me, but Am I wrong in thinking that if I tell my, uh, if I tell my um, 
my young earth faithful friends, listen, if God did it through evolution, it doesn't make it any less miraculous. I need to also be able to turn around and tell my, um, old, for lack of a better term, old earth faithful friends, if God did it in 10,000 years or, or, you know, in a six day, literal six day creation and the earth's only six to 10,000 years old, that doesn't make it any less scientific since God, you know, made the rules anyway. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I probably wouldn't phrase it exactly the same way, but what I would say is that the question of how old the earth is, is not fundamental to our faith. Right. And I, I think that, you know, we shouldn't get worked up about it. In fact, I, I try hard not to tell people what they should think about it, but for me as a scientist, what I want to do is is look at all the evidence and see what the best explanation is. In fact, that's really the way the, the scientific method works, is using this inductive process to go where the evidence leads us. Mm. And you know, induction stands in stark contrast to deduction, you know, which is used in math and in logic, where you can make these if-then statements. So if one thing is true, then another follows. But in science, what we're doing is we're, you know, we're setting up these hypotheses and then setting up experiments to um, either confirm the hypothesis or nullify the hypothesis. And so essentially... In layman's terms, what we're doing is we're looking for the best explanation given the evidence that we have so far. So we're building a case based on evidence, realizing that new evidence could turn up tomorrow that would say, oh, we didn't have this quite right. We need to shift our paradigm. And so, so like I say, as a scientist, what I want to do is I want to look at all of the evidence, um, the evidence from scripture, the evidence from nature, uh, but when I say the evidence from nature, I want to look at all the different fields of science, all the different disciplines, and see how that evidence adds up. If you, if you take that approach, then the evidence for an old Earth uh, is is pretty pretty overwhelming. Right, and, and uh, yeah. And Go ahead, sorry. So I was just going to say, oh, and and if that's the case, I mean, if it's if it's an old Earth, then it's an old Earth that doesn't that doesn't make it not miraculous, right? I mean, that's kind of my point. Absolutely. Is that it's still miraculous, Absolutely. even if if it was even if it's oh old. Oh my gosh, for me, it's even more so. Um, my view of who God is is expanded so much because of what we've learned through science. I mean, there's so many things that have to be just exactly right to get the universe that we have that supports life. Um, you see this fine-tuning of, of every scientific law and every, every physical parameter that have to be within a very, very narrow range of numbers. If you move anything just slightly, you, you can't have life. And so to, to believe in a God who so finely orchestrated everything and, and planned it out in advance... Um, who wrote the laws of physics, who, who set everything in motion and, and watched it play out according to his plan. Uh, to me, that is ever so much more miraculous than a God who snaps his fingers and says, you know, there it is, you know. And in fact, a recent uh, comment by the Pope, I don't know if you, you saw it or not, but he says, you know, God is not a magician. And, and I really feel like a lot of times that's what we're, looking, that's the view that we have of God, is 
is that he's one that just snaps his fingers and makes it so. But to me, it's all, so much more um, awe-inspiring that he he is is a God who puts things together very synergistically and with with care. Um, so yeah, mm. that's the long answer to your that's, question. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's really interesting too because you think back to the Ken Ham and Bill Nye debate. Yeah, that, that captured so much attention. And and part of the issue with that debate was that the focus became entirely on whether or not it was a new Earth um, versus old Earth and not really on any of the other details. You know, the, the fixation was on how long ago it was that Noah's Ark could have existed. And it re- really wasn't mm-hmm. on the other details around this, the yeah. deeper details around it, which I think was yeah. a little bit unfortunate. Um, yeah. And I go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead. You go ahead. Well, what what I was going to say is, you know, if if you think about uh, the Bible, and uh, you know, I had one of my colleagues at, at the Pacific uh, tell me that her her students were concerned about a faithful reading of Scripture, and I thought that was such a beautiful entree to this whole discussion, because a faithful reading of Scripture is hard work. It's not just about opening the Bible and reading it from a 21st century American perspective. It's understanding what the context was, understanding what the genre was, understanding who the original audience was. And if you think about Genesis, you know, being written thousands of years ago to a pre-scientific society or culture, um, just imagine if... God had chosen to inspire the writer to speak in terms of what we know as modern science and dark energy and dark matter and the expansion of the universe. I mean, they, it would have just been nonsense. They wouldn't have had any context for that. It would have been uh, meaningless to the original audience. And so, I mean, it's, it, it, the message of Scripture is primarily theological and certainly not scientific. Um, and I think if we can keep that in mind and, and realize that, you know, the, the message of Scripture, and particularly in Genesis, is, you know, God created the world, God loved his creation, God made a plan for human beings to either choose or reject him and, and live in relationship with him. And even when we turned away through our free will that he granted us, he still provides a way to be reconciled. Hmm. And, you know, there, it, it just, to me, if you look at it from the standpoint of, of the original audience, there's no possible way that it could have spoken of accurate science that we know today and been of any use to the original audience. That's a good, have, you, good point. have you ever encountered anything that has caused you to question your faith at all? You know, any details, any, just in your work that maybe you looked at and you said, huh, and you had to sort of go back to the drawing board and, and look at your faith deeper because of? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. I think that I think that if we uh, deny ourselves the ability to question and doubt, we're missing out on something that's really important. And I think, you know, for me, that happened in college, you know, um, and as it does with a lot of people, you know. So first time you're living away from home and you're being asked questions uh, by professors uh, that challenge what you've always believed. I mean, that's, it's part of learning critical thinking, right? And, uh, and so for me, that happened in college. And, 
and I, it was a time of questioning and reviewing what I had always thought uh, to be true and and rediscovering for myself whether or not it, it made sense. And and it, it resulted in a process of, of, yes, questioning my faith, but going back and considering the big questions and considering the various answers to um, why we're here, that um, various religions or various um, philosophers through the ages have proposed. And for me, Christianity made the most sense with what I was learning through science as well as what are the other the other alternatives that I was being exposed to. And um, a friend of mine by the name of Peter Enns has a, a book called uh, The Benefit of Doubt. And in it, he explores that. It's like, if we don't allow ourselves to question anything, then our, our faith is a very shaky faith. Hmm. No, absolutely. So, absolutely. And, you know, when you talked about the Big Bang, and I don't know if you want to go into this, but, you know, would you would you apply the same sort of, um, and, you know, not just the Big Bang, the development of the Earth in general, the same sort of ideology to to the debate over evolution, for instance, you know, is it important? Yeah. Is it not important? Yeah, again, I think, you know, it's important for us to um, use use what, uh, how God reveals himself, like I say, both in, in uh, nature as well as in scripture and see how things fit together. And I believe that, you know, God is a God of truth and he's not going to do things to uh, deceive us. I think he, he wants us to understand him better, and he, he longs for a closer relationship with us. And so um, if we look at the evidence that he's provided, then we're going we're gonna to discover more and more truth. And so I guess what I'm trying to get around to is that um, you know, the evidence that uh, the earth is old and that uh, life is old um, is, is growing. And particularly when we, when we have learned as much as we have learned uh, and are continuing to learn in the area of genetics, we see uh, connections between species. And, um, and so, I, you know, similar to how we see God using processes in the physical universe, and, you know, we can look deep in space thanks to some of the, the telescopes that we have now. Um, Hubble in particular, uh, where we can actually see stars uh, forming in in nebulas, and uh, we can we can see processes that lead to planetary formation. Uh, we can see newborn stars and newborn planets. So we, we see those physical processes at work, um, you know, following the precise laws of physics that God ordained from the beginning, and and so. It does seem to be a harder pill for people to swallow that maybe God used processes in biological life as well. But as science has progressed and we've started looking uh, more at the genetic evidence that we now have access to, we see these unmistakable uh, connections uh, between uh, various forms of life, various different species. And it starts to be pretty hard to ignore that uh, God most likely used um, processes in the development of biological life as well. And again, 
to me, you know, in fact, one of the things I, I mentioned in my book is a kind of a, a thought experiment where um, I ask I ask the reader to consider that maybe God is like this extremely masterful computer programmer who writes all the initial code, he sets the the operating laws in place, and um, you know, very precisely orchestrates everything and then watches it all unfold according to his plan. And to me, again, that inspires more awe, more worship, more reverence uh, than a God who just snaps his fingers and makes it so. Hmm. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's that. That's my answer. And again, you know, I, I try very hard not to tell people what they should think, but I think that God gave us these rational, logical minds uh, to kind of look at the evidence and uh, put things together for themselves. So, Dr. Wickman, if I could, if I could jump in here, uh, I had a, a question about um, Big Bang stuff, and you had mentioned the evidence earlier and, and looking at evidence. And there was a report that came out uh, weeks, a few weeks ago, questioning. I mean, like from the scientific community, from what I understood. Listen, I haven't. Listen, I'm a dummy with a microphone. I haven't read all the journals. I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm lucky to even get through Cat in the Hat in one sitting. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> this is what, what you're talking to right now, okay? But the, the, the hubbub, at least the headlines, was, you know, Big Bang in question or Big Bang didn't happen or we've got to rethink the Big Bang. Have you looked into that? Have you read those reports? What are your thoughts on it, if you have? Yeah, I mean, there's—and and, and that's the way science works. You know, um, again, what we're doing is we're looking at the evidence that we have today— and uh, looking for the best explanation given that set of evidence. And, and so good science is always questioning itself. That's the way it works. And so actually, you know, ever since uh, the notion of the Big Bang came up, in fact, you know, Fred Hoyle was the, the first uh, scientist that referred to it as the Big Bang, and he, he did it in a very kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek or almost derogatory way. Uh, and saying, oh, you know, how did this all happen? There was a big bang, and you know, and then there it was. You know, it was it was really a joke. And and um, he and and many other uh, scientists of his day were very uncomfortable with the idea of a big bang uh, because of the fact that it proposed a beginning to the universe, and a beginning necessitates a cause or a beginner, and just by simple uh, logic, uh, anything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. Sure. Um, but if anything is self-existent, then then there's no need to explain a cause for it. So many of those uh, scientists and philosophers of that day were much more comfortable with the idea of a universe that always existed because it didn't necessitate the explanation of a cause or a beginner. Hmm. And so, so anyway, so, um, so the, the news quote unquote news that, you know, the, the big bang theory is in question is, is not real news. I mean, it's, it's always been questioned. Um, and yeah, there are, um, people that are saying, well, maybe, you know, in fact, Stephen Hawking, uh, is is one i don't know if you've read any of his recent uh writing oh, oh, oh yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna get into that some of his writings that i've been you know reading again for the third time 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the Grand Design, in fact, one of his recent books um, talks about the idea that um, that universes may just always be popping into existence, and that there may be this this cycle of you know new universes continuing continually uh, arising and the interaction between these uh, uh, multiple universes may cause others to come into existence. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't know. I mean, we don't have any way of knowing for sure that that's not the case. That, you know, and, and one thing I would like to suggest is if you look at the history of science, you see this kind of thing happening over and over again where, you know, the... The latest um, hypotheses or uh, pro- propositions from science uh, tend to upset kind of the accepted religious view of things. You know, we go back to Galileo and his idea that you know the Earth was not the center of the solar system, and the flack that he received um, as a result. Um, but then, you know, as time goes on and more and more evidence comes to support that view that no, that the sun is in fact the center of our solar system and that earth moves around it. And it takes a while for the church to come to terms with that new science, you know? And, you know, the same thing I would say is happening right now uh, for some with the big bang, uh, for some with evolution. Um, But, you know, one of the, the newest things on the horizon is this kind of alternative to the, the Big Bang being the beginning of everything is the multiverse hypothesis that there might be an infinite number of additional universes or, or at least a very large number of additional universes. And, you know, my God is big enough for that. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, I feel like the more we've learned through science, the more, uh, the more my view of who God is, is just magnified and gives me even more cause for wonder and worship. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if it turns out that we do live in a multiverse. Hmm. But again, like I say, I, my God is big enough for that. Sure. So uh, Billy, could I ask another question here? Sure. And then I, and then I will get the final, final okay, question. Okay. So then I'm, then I'm going to ask two questions then. <laughs> First, um, and this is just kind of a throwaway, just yes or no, or tell me to pound sand or whatever. Do you believe uh, in extraterrestrial life? I mean, are you a, a, a do you do you believe the accounts that you hear on the news of you know I was sucked up into a spaceship or or at least the idea of um, aliens, for lack of a better term? Okay, do you want my short answer or my long answer? <laughs> Whichever you think would be more interesting, I'll take your long well, okay. answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, first of all, I mean, again, like I said, with with how science progresses and how the the church seems to have kind of a lag time in in accepting the latest science uh, before it becomes more or less obvious. Um, I I think you know, first of all, we aren't told anything in scripture relating to life elsewhere, but my view of who God is is way big enough to uh, believe that he certainly could have created life elsewhere. Um, and I think it's kind of um, earth-centric for us to think that we're the only life that God created. Um, 
I think it's almost arrogant for us to think that. Um, and especially if it turns out we live in a multiverse. Um, I think it would be fascinating to, to learn that God had, had created life elsewhere. That said, given all the things that have to be just exactly right for life to exist, um, just as it is extremely improbable for life to um, arise on Earth, um, it's also extremely improbable for life to arise naturally any other way, in, in any other place because the, there's so many things that have to be adjusted what, exactly right for that to happen. Right. So, so if there is life elsewhere, then I believe that God created that life also. Billy wants to know if there's a, a thinner hymn somewhere in another multi-universe. <laughs> There's a what? A thinner him? A thinner him. I told him there's, told him there's no way. There's only um, in all of the multiverses that could exist. There's only room for one Billy, thin or fat. It doesn't exactly, matter. Exactly. I agree. <laughs> so, oh, so Bill- each of us. I mean, I I think you know that's such an interesting question, and some people you know have kind of a philosophical bent on that. That in these other possible universes, that every eventuality plays itself out. But that's that too, is, is really a philosophical um, idea and not one that we can invest scientifically, at least at this point. Gotcha. Okay, so Billy, I had I told you I had I wanted two questions, and that was one, so now I've got another, but I just thought of one more, and this is just a fun one. It's a simple, it's a simple two-word answer. Star Trek or Star Wars? <laughs> um, how about Trek Wars? Okay. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> so, Sorry. That's okay. So the... the uh, the other question I had, and this this gets to more serious. Um, what? Billy's texting me questions. Sorry. <laughs> I'm up, I apologize. What? We are incredibly. I'm sorry. Unpro- I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. We're incredibly unprofessional here, Doctor Wickman, and things are falling apart. So <laughs> Billy was asking me a question <laughs> offline, and I totally got distracted, and I, I apologize that for that. Was the goal. You would not. You would not enjoy having me in any of your classes. So, um, the question I was going to ask you, though, uh, and. You, you talked about it here at the beginning of our conversation, and I think it's a, thing, a good thing to come back to. You know, a Christians are often accused of, at least, if not, if, whether it's accurate or not, are often accused of being afraid of science because they feel that it will threaten, <clears throat> excuse me, threaten their faith or threaten their religious beliefs or, or, or their doctrine or, or whatever. I, would you say, though, that there's also a fear on the, quote, scientific side? Um, of the God question, because I, I have found in my debates and discussions with people who are way smarter than me is that there seems to be a refusal to um, acknowledge God. And it seems to me that comes from a fear of, because the next logical question, if you acknowledge a creator is what is my relationship with that creator? And do you experience, do you, do you a think that that's an accurate interpretation on my part, at least, from conversations you had with maybe people in similar, similar situations. And do you think that that is something that's common throughout the, um, again, I, I don't have the right terminology of the atheistic scientific community. You know, I, I, I would, uh, hesitate to label that, uh, within the science community, certainly because actually recent poll out of a university in Texas showed that uh, 61% of American scientists self-identify as Christian. Wow. So that's a pretty hefty percentage. But I, I think that you have definitely hit the nail on the head with the, uh, the issue of, of atheists being afraid to 
acknowledge the possibility of a God. And again, that's, I think, you know, these kind of fundamentalists, um, you know, dig your heels into your, your position and you're not going to look at evidence to the contrary is, is just exactly that. It's, it's based in fear. And, and my brother has a great saying. He, he always says that people do things out of faith or out of fear. And I want to be one that does things out of faith. And, um, and I, I, but I do think that fear keeps people uh, stuck where they are a lot of times. And, and I think the same is true for, for this issue of science versus faith. Okay. Um, and I have a million other questions, but I want to make sure we talk before we close here about God of the Big Bang, how modern science affirms the creator, y- your book, which obviously I would assume addresses many of these issues. Um, and I, I guess let me just ask you why you why you wrote this book and what you're hoping readers will take away from it. And that's that's a great question. Thanks for the, that opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, I, this is something that has really grown out of my life's passion to show that the two fit together. And like I said, again, it's just, you know, for me, it's only logical that, that if God is who he claims to be, that the truth about what he's created can't possibly logically contradict contradict who he is. And so it's, it's basically the purpose of the book is to share that message with others in particular with, um, young people who are still trying to figure out uh, what they want to do with their lives. And I mean, I feel like a lot of students come to you know, the university already um, thinking that they have to make a choice between science and faith. And my hope is that in this book, they'll see how science and faith complement each other rather than contradict each other. And that it's possible to be both a faithful Christian and a good scientist, because we certainly need more uh, uh, Christians in the sciences. Sciences, and anyway, I just I just feel that it's so important for people to understand that that you don't have to choose one or the other, and that's where the book is coming from. I lied because I have one more question, just one more. Um, I have to ask you about Adam and Eve and how that fits into everything, because you know people are going to say, well, if if evolution is true, then how how do Adam and Eve fit into it? And I would just love to know what your take is on that. Um, I wish I could remember this quote from Billy Graham, uh, word for word, but basically he says that it doesn't matter how God did it. Um, the the fact that he created uh, human beings with a spirit that can uh, choose to have a relationship with him is the main point. And, and whether that came about by um, by evolution and at a certain point, you know, God, uh, breathed life into a man and woman, um, or whether, you know, he snapped his fingers and, and created uh, man out of dust. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, and so, so yeah, different people have different views on who exactly Adam and Eve were. Uh, <clears throat> and, Again, I, I don't like to try to tell people what they, they should think, and I think the the key uh, be- difference between uh, uh, animal and uh, human is that we as humans have spirit, and basically what that means is that we have a component to ourselves that it seeks for meaning in life and a connection with something greater than ourselves. 
and you can see uh, through various different uh, forms of historical evidence. Um, archaeologically, you see a point when uh, there, there began to be quote-unquote religious artifacts. Um, and so you can see that at a point in time, um, uh, there, that spiritual element was introduced. Now, whether it was to uh, an, an individual unique couple um, or whether it was to a generation um, is a question that still needs to be answered. And um, again, I think the important thing is that, that God gave us that, that component and that free will to choose choose to follow him or reject him. Well, listen, it has been great talking with you, Dr. Wickman, and we'd love to have you back sometime in the near future. Great. That sounds like fun to me, too. Thanks, Doctor. Thank you so much. And now, back to the church, boys. You're a real pain in my ass. Hi, it's me, Chris Field, and I'm here know, today for the tenth floor of the Pentagon, all about church. Okay, so now I've got to now I'm going to have to go back and fix all of the audio because you just set all of the parameters. Kaboom! Everything exploded. So now you've just added thirty minutes of work minimum to me before we get this done. Oh, I'm kidding. It won't take that long. Oh, actually, like I actually minutes. was having this like flutter of <laughs> excitement. <laughs> You were, that I might have you, ruined your night. You thought this instead of being up till three o'clock in the morning, I was going to be up till four. Is what you were thinking? So, uh, I was going to. Okay, so thinking about that interview, you know what? I most impressed. Well, not most impressed me. One of the things that really stood out in my mind is I. You told me we're going to have this lady who was first. You told me we we're going to have this former astronaut on. Okay, and I'm thinking, cool, we're going to have like one of these cool old heroes, you know, old astronauts. And you told me, then you tell me it's a female. And I'm like, are you kidding? We're going to have a, a female astronaut. Do they even know science? Oh, but, boy. But then I realized how wrong I was. Um, of course, I did. On every level. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm wrong on every level all the time. But we got we had got to have this interview with her, and I just I loved her. And I thought, when you said something about a former astronaut, the scientist who does the Big Bang stuff and looks at I thought, okay, we're talk, we're, this is going to be a sleeper interview. And... <laughs> And she actually wasn't. She was just really cool. And she was, um, are you periscoping again? Are you trying to embarrass me? No, I well, wanted to I... periscope, but I'm not. <laughs> so anyway, I thought this, I, I was not looking forward to this interview simply because I thought how interesting is a female scientist going to be? And uh, what I found when out was she was, when she you was get awesome. To hell, can you tell me what it looks like? Can you tell me about it when but you she, get there? So we, when we got done, you hung up from the interview, and she didn't hang up. So she and I talked for another minute or two afterwards. Yeah, I was not, done. I'm, I'm like, peace gonna, out. It's like, peace out, woman. I'm out of here. But she and I talked for a while. She really had a good time. I, I want to let you know up front that she actually really had a good time with her, and we want to have her back. Something. She's just. I thought she was fascinating. She's great. And I thought she, was she wasn't boring. I didn't. I thought. I thought um, the most controversial thing that she said was Trek Wars. I mean, you got to take a stance. It's either Star <laughs> Trek or Star Wars. Or if we're living in reality, the most controversial things she said were about the Big Bang and evolution, possibly being. <laughs> okay, of course, true. Billy's going to ignore the Star Trek versus Star Wars argument because he hasn't because seen I'm, any because of those I'm movies amazed. or anything. He's more of a Nicholas Sparks fan, so he'll oh. he'd rather talk about the Notebook or whatever. What's no, Notebook? Can we talk about something for a minute? Yes. We How can. does one person 
How does one man write 4,500 books that are all the same storyline set in a different time frame and change the name of the characters and get a movie deal for every one of those books that's the same as the last one and become a gazillionaire? How does it happen? <laughs> I hate him. I don't know, and I hate him. I hate him I hate with him. the passion of a thousand white hot suns. Oh, my gosh. He's the intensity. But it reminds me of you. Did you see um, the movie with Helen Hunt and Jack uh, Nicholson? Um uh, as good as it gets, and he's an author, and he writes novels, and they're like, I think mostly less than the dust kind of books, but he talks, but he writes women, this woman approaches him and says, I gotta know, how do you write women so well? And he says, I imagine a man, and then I take away reason and accountability. Oh <laughs> and gosh, you realize that that- I'm, All I'm doing is quoting a movie. I'm not saying whether it's accurate or correct, I'm just saying. Because that's how, when you mention Nicholas Sparks, that's what I think of. It's crazy, cranky. Old I, I think Nicholson. of literally somebody who has not had a new idea. I need to not be mean. Somebody who is <laughs> going to shoot himself. <laughs> no, Nicholas Sparks is going to kill himself. Great. Way to go. Um, somebody who has the same exact storyline every single time and just changes the manner of death in which one of the couple the people in the couple <laughs> die. However, they die. Is it Alzheimer's? Is it is it being shot in a car? Is it God knows what? However, their their life ends. It's the same story. <laughs> they love each you other know, but can't be together because somebody's in prison or has a terminal illness. You know what I think of when I think of Nicholas Sparks? I think John Seidel. I don't I don't <laughs> under I don't understand. <laughs> Did you see the conversation we had on Slack? The, the oh team? gosh, yeah, I blocked it out. But All yes, right. yes. He was. He went to a movie with his wife, John Seidel. Um, well, his wife. Sparks his movie. wife. No, his wife took him. His wife took the, him to the the Nicholas Sparks movie. It was the Notebook three and a half. <laughs> Is that him now? No. Okay. Good. Do you hear that ding? Yes. This right. show. This show always lose. We always lose it around like the last minute of the show. <laughs> Seidel. See the what is it? Notebook three and a half. You said whatever the city at Nick They could just be called Nicholas Sparks one, Nicholas Sparks two, Nicholas Sparks exactly, three. Exactly. They, you're right. They are all the same, which is why John Seidel loves them. They're morbid. They're morbid, morbid <laughs> films. Morbid. Okay. So on that note, <laughs> and books you too. Have... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, married men who watch Nicholas Sparks movies. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! Wait, Chris Field. I'm pretty sure when you ever, whenever you cough, I think he has it on mute. It's almost an emphysema like noise uh, that no, comes out. Mute, and you've never think. been a smoker. No, never, never. I never touched tobacco. I don't never touched alcohol in my entire life. But boy, you people drive me to drink. <laughs> All right. So now that we have completely fallen apart, and any um, words of wisdom or thoughts for John Seidel? Read your Bible. And the blaze and skip out on the Nicholas Sparks movies. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> Bye-bye.